So I told you about this guy and what a transformation the Lord did in his life. This is how I discipled him. I used one of those, uh, uh, John Piper has a little article called Anthem, A-N-T-H-E-M. It's online, just type Piper Anthem in Google. And this is, this is what I taught this guy about how to be sanctified. Because he said, how do I stop going to the bars and, you know, all that. I said, avoid the sight and situation that arouse unfitting desires. Say no to every lustful thought within five seconds. Turn your mind forcefully toward Christ. This is Piper's word. As a superior satisfaction, hold the promise and pleasure of Christ firmly. Enjoy a superior satisfaction. By the way, that's the attribute of God called beauty. Theologians have said that God is the most desirable and beautiful top of everything in the universe. And the more we understand that, as the hymn writer said, the things of earth grow strangely dim. And so enjoy the superior satisfaction of Christ and move to something useful. So I went through that with him. And by the way, that guy married one of the most ordinary looking women in the world that was in our choir. I mean, formerly, when he was fleshly, lustly, and sinful, all he looked for was the most knockout woman at the bar. When Christ changed him completely from the inside out, the one he dated was the least knockout person. I mean, what I mean is she was beautifully godly, but none of the other stuff he looked for. And I thought, what a blessing that God changes everything. But without Jesus, we're living in total darkness. Revelation 16, that's when he turns out the lights. Salvation, that's one of my favorite verses, opens our eyes and turns us from darkness to light. This is Jesus talking to Paul about salvation. Salvation is when God opens our eyes, God turns us from darkness to light, God sets us free from the power of Satan, we're forgiven, and we are sanctified. But now let's get to Armageddon. That's the end of chapter 16. Look at chapter 16, verse 12. And the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. It dried up, prepared the way for the kings of the east. The three unclean spirits like frogs came out of the mouth of the dragon. These are three demons. Verse 14 says, Are the spirit of demons? Gather them to the battle of the great day. And verse 16, the place in Hebrew is called the hill of Megiddo, Armageddon. Basically, now this isn't the battle, but this is the beginning of it. This is what so much of the Old Testament talks about. This is what Zechariah 12 to 14 talk about. This is God's wrath, Israel's future, and the great battle of Armageddon. Why? Why does that happen? Because God stakes his name on Israel. Hosea 5.15, God calls Jerusalem my city. In, in Jeremiah 31, God says, these are my people. This is my land, Israel. They're mine, my chosen people. So during the tribulation, all the nations of the earth turn against the Jews, the people God calls them, my people, and against Jerusalem, the city God calls my city. And look what the Lord says in Zechariah 3. The Lord will go forth and fight against those nations when he fights on the day of the battle. Actually, if you keep reading Zechariah, it says all the nations of the earth gather. So there are so many of these passages. Did you know there's an Isaiah, I mean Psalm 83 passage? There is this Ezekiel 38 and 39 that many people talk about. Daniel 11 describes the Antichrist's final battle. And then there's where we are, Revelation 16. Well, let me give you a chart. Uh, by the way, our friend Titus in the back has spent all of his own personal time, and he's converted all 
six or 700 of these slides into Microsoft something, and he's getting them for you. And the first five are already somewhere, and the rest are I don't know where. But this is how we reconcile this. The 69 weeks of the 70 weeks of Daniel, that's what's on the left. There's the interval, that's the cross. The little flame yellow thing is the destruction of Jerusalem. The yellow line is the rapture of the church. The Magog invasion of Ezekiel 38 and 39 has two groups. Some people feel it's before the rapture. Some people feel it's Armageddon. Now I'll tell you in a minute why uh, it, it doesn't really fully align with Armageddon. The rebuilding of the temple, you notice the question marks there. We don't know when Magog invasion is for sure. We don't know when the temple gets started rebuilt. But we do know at the middle of the tribulation, the abomination of desolation, and from that point on is what is called the Great Tribulation. We do know the Battle of Armageddon, that's the red line, is, is what precipitates the second coming. Okay, And then we have the millennium. Well, what does Psalm 83 talk about? It talks about Moab, the Hagarenes, Gebal, Ammon, Amalek, Philistia, Tyre, and Assyria, all attacking Jerusalem at once. Now, wait a minute. Moab are the Palestinians and the central Jordanians geographically. Hagarenes are the Egyptians. You know, Hagar was the matriarch of, of the, that came from Egypt. Gebal describes northern Lebanon, which is where Hezbollah is. Ammon, that's where the Palestinians and the northern Jordanians are. Amalek, that's the Sinai Arabs. Philistia, that's Hamas in the Gaza Strip. Tyre they actually have the, this, the area of Tyre. That's Hezbollah. Assyria, those are the Syrians in the northern Iraqis. When have all those people ever attacked Israel at once? Well, first of all, the list on the left, they are not all at the same time historically. So already we're having a problem. So if it's a geographical, when is the Psalm 83 war? That's very interesting. Now, where's the Ezekiel 38 and 39 war? I mean, God gives geographic locations for us to think about stuff. And if you, if you took a map and plotted, in fact, here is a map where you plot all those places. Uh, Magog is South Russia. Gomer Tagarma is Turkey, Syria. Iran is Persia. Libya is Libya. Ethiopia is Ethiopia. They all attack Israel, which is very interesting. Now, this is not a Bible map. This is uh, from uh, Bloomberg or something. And I showed you this a couple days ago. They recently published this and said there's a new Middle East Cold War where you know, the U.S. is with its allies or against Russia with its allies. And Russia's allies are the green and the U.S.'s allies, which happen to also be Israel's allies, are the red. That's very interesting because that's very similar to Ezekiel 38 and 39. But what Daniel and Revelation 16 and 19 talk about is different. It's not just, you know, the, the coalition of the uh, Muslim nations or those old aggressor, you know, the old enemies of Israel. Do you know what Daniel 11 and Revelation 16 and 19 talk about? It talks about what Daniel 11 says is that the Antichrist is sitting with his tent, with his back to Jerusalem, and he's looking toward the west. In other words, his base is looking to the west, and so there's armies coming from what we would call Western Europe. There's the armies coming from the north. There are the armies of the you can actually read it, the kings of the south, 
and then the kings of the east. So this is far bigger than Ezekiel 38 and 39 or Psalm 83. And it's, it's huge. The kings of the east, I mean, you know, China, uh, you know, whatever, the, the tigers they call them, you know, Korea, Japan, all of those nations coming across. The armies of the north, of course, Russia and all the former Soviet Union um, you know, those nations. And then we have the armies of the West, of course, Western Europe and the Western world, and then the great African armies. In other words, Armageddon is much bigger than Ezekiel 38 and 39, much bigger than Psalm 83. It's the final war of everybody. And what God says is judgment crescendos. At the end of 16, God said it is done, and Satan, who was defeated at the cross, is in the final stretch, the ultimate megaquake rumbles. It's, it's called mega seismos in Greek. How do you like that? Sounds just like English. You know, seismic and mega, you know, like a mega meal. And so it's a big seismos earthquake, the biggest one of all. Jerusalem is split, and it says every island and mountain starts moving on earth. So this is a crustal convulsion, not just the tectonic plates around the ring of fire. All of them start moving. Every island is moved, every mountain. Why? God is initiating the preparation of the earth for the millennial renewal. See, God is always, I mean, he's got this plan and he's orchestrating it and he's using the judgments to start getting the earth ready for the millennium. And he renews and does a lot. But during this time, God rains down. Look what he rains down. Look at the end. Verse 21 of chapter 16. And great hail from heaven fell on men. When did this happen before? Ah, in Joshua's conquest of the land. How long did it take Joshua to conquer the land? Seven years. How long does the tribulation last? Seven years. There is such correspondence between all the Old Testament events, Moses and the gods of Egypt, and Joshua and the conquest of the land, and, and the king of the north, and all that stuff. But look what happened both with Joshua and here. Hailstones about the weight of a talent. How much is a talent? You look down in the notes of your study Bible, it's differing weights between 60 and 100 pounds. Can you imagine? They're talking about hypersonic weapons. You know, it's in the news all the time. America has hypersonic weapons. They've tested them. They work. They're just, we don't blow the horn all the time. And they're finally letting them out. One of our hypersonic weapons doesn't have an explosive warhead. It's a kinetic energy weapon that they just send this, this warhead, I don't know, weighs 100 pounds, but they send it at, at like 15,000 miles an hour. Did you know that 100 pounds at 15,000 miles an hour you don't need explosions. The, the kinetic energy, it's like a meteorite. You know how big a hole a little meteorite makes. That's what's going on with these hailstones. And so, I mean, it's devastating. And everything on earth, land, sea, and air starts to convulse. And basically, life without Jesus just brings total fear. The whole world is, is fearful. And what does that say to us? Uh, why was the book of Revelation written? To scare us, to get a bomb shelter so we can survive the tribulation? No. What did it do to the early, the, that map I keep showing you, of the early people of the first century church that got it? It encouraged them. You know what they thought of? Oh, uh, what it says in, in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? He will freely give us all things. How about verse 35? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? The tribulation? No. Present distresses? No. Coming persecutions? No. Famine, nakedness, peril, sword, nothing. That's why God gives humans a taste of hell. It shows what people are counting on. Now, 
Now we're in this hour. That was last hour. Why does God hate religion so much? Did you know God hates religion? Do you know who started religion? Satan started religion. And that's what we're going into when we go to the next part of Revelation. The last two chapters of the tribulation are unique. Chapter 17, if you turn there, is all about this harlot, what she's wearing, what she says, what she's doing. It's kind of a strange part of the Bible. Then chapter 18 is about all these spices and, and goods and God destroying them all. I mean, what is that doing in Revelation? You ought to see what ancient commentators did with this, especially like Calvin and Luther, who did not think, you know, Calvin and Luther are covenant theologians, and so they believe God's done with Israel, and the Jews are finished, and there's no future for them, and all that stuff. And so they're trying to figure out, what does Revelation mean when it has nothing to do with Israel? <laughs> Boy, that's a hard thing to figure out, you know? And, and that's what half of Christendom does. The Roman Catholic Church is reformed, too. Uh, in fact, what you call Calvinism is really Augustinianism. St. Augustine invented all that stuff. Calvin only wrote it and popularized it. It's Augustinian theology, which is the heart of Roman Catholic theology. So, but why are those two chapters there? Why, just before Christ's second coming, do we have Revelation 17 and 18? That's, as you're studying the Bible, to understand it, you should ask yourself that. Well, they were living in an ever-darkening world. Now, I'm going to only show a little bit of this because we don't have time, but I was just sitting. Remember I told you that last fall in October and November, Bonnie and I got the privilege of teaching uh, Paul's epistles. I did the introduction to all 13 of Paul's epistles in Greece and Italy. So I taught the book of Romans in Rome. I mean, and one day as I was on my way to class, uh, we, we actually stayed in, in uh, the city. This is where we were, and I was sitting where is it here? I was wearing this hat, okay? You'll see it in the picture. Um, studying my Bible. Now, I'm only going to play a little bit of this. Let's see if the audio works. Amazing implications of the Antichrist global religion. And what a spot to read this, but right here in front of the monument to global religion. Now you can't hear it, but guess what? The people living in this part of the world were confronted with that building. Did you see what the building was? It's called the Pantheon. How many of you noticed the Pantheon? Come on. You all know that from world history and geography and all that stuff. Pan in Greek means all. Theon is God's. The, the Romans conquered the world, and they did it very methodically, but what they did that was so helpful, every conquered people, they got to take their, their deity, their God that they worshipped, and Rome took them over but did not destroy that God. They said, give us your greatest representation of your God, and we're going to take it home to Rome, and we're going to put it in our pantheon. And every time you come to the capital of the world, you can see your God there. And they had all the gods displayed. Now the deal was, your gods, whatever your god was, keep worshiping him, but just add one more thing to it. Worship the Roman emperor that conquered you. You're too weak to resist us, so why don't you acknowledge we're better than you. You can still worship your god, but you've got to worship us too. Me, the king, the emperor. And that's what Hadrian, he's the one 
that made the current form of the Pantheon, but there were Pantheons all over the place. There were these, these places where they collected all the gods, but you had to worship the emperor. That is exactly what these people that got revelation were seeing coalescing, forming all around them. That all the religions of the world were being gathered together under this Roman ruler. What I just described is the Antichrist. What I just described is Acts 17. Why is all this going on? Well, Satan has a goal. His singular focus is what we see in Genesis. In Genesis 3, when, when mankind fell into sin, there were four lies that Satan caused Eve, his first contact, to believe. And then she passed it on to Adam, if you remember. And the first one was, doubt God's word. Do you remember the first thing Satan says in Genesis 3? Has, has God said? Are you sure the Bible's accurate in that? Boy, isn't that what we're living through right now? Christians are fighting over whether the Bible really says things that God says are right or wrong. And they say, well, you don't interpret that right. Or Paul was, you know, whatever. Or, or the Old Testament has nothing to do with us. And there's Christians, number one, are doubting God's word. That's Satan's. His goal is just abandon God's way by doubting it or doubting God's goodness. God doesn't know uh, what he said to Eve is, why, why isn't the Lord letting you do this? He doesn't like you. He's trying to keep something from you. That's the whole that's why, why we have all these couples living together. You know, God's trying to keep you from really getting to know this person before you marry him, so you, God's way is archaic. You should, you know, uh, commit what God says is wrong, and it's wrong that he's keeping you from that sexual thing. By the way, who invented sex? Who designed it? Who wrote a whole book talking about, you know, the book of Song of Solomon is extolling the incredible book of Proverbs calls sexual activity intoxicating and, and, and kind of like it's the most wonderful thing in the world. Who invented all that? God. But God said sex is like a river. As long as it's kept inside the banks, it's good. But if you allow it to rage and go outside the banks, it's bad. Here, let me tell you a little thing for all of you dating couples. A boy who before marriage can't stop his sexual desires for you, what, he, what that means is his sexual desires cannot be bounded by rules because they don't apply to us, it applies to everybody else, but not to us because, you know, whatever. How is he going to change after he's married? See, I've, I'm the one that's pastored for 40 years and seen all these Christian couples, and I find out that the guy that was involved premaritally sexually involved with his wife-to-be and who knows how many before that, is still like that after he's married. How do I know that? God says it. Solomon said it. The eyes of a man are never satisfied. If you can't get your eyes satisfied before marriage, do you think marriage is going to satisfy your eyes? No way. It just helps you know more what you want. And the same men that are uncontrolled and they're unbridled in their desires before marriage, they have problems. Do you know why? Because after a while, your wife, after you're married a little while and she has a child or something, she doesn't look at all like the online girls look. And, and that insatiable desire never goes away. So what I would say is the real question is whether we can start believing God's goodness and he says that any sexual activity before marriage is wrong, period. Uh, you guys aren't old enough to remember 
our president, you know, uh, and drudge and all that. So I won't even talk about it. Doubt God's authority. You will not surely die in Genesis 3, 4 and doubt God's plan. Uh, so what does Satan do? I'm not teaching Genesis, I'm teaching Revelation. Satan has two offers. If you will walk away from God's plan, he gives you two options. One is religion, the other is materialism. What's the difference? Religion is achieve God's favor by your, your religious activity, your human achievement. Materialism is seek physical things. In fact, I wrote it out for you. These are the two worst things Satan's devised, okay? Number one is religion. It's trying to achieve God's favor through human achievement by making my own way to God. You t you're going to run into this every time you witness. When you're going out, those of you that are going in the, the outreaches, when you witness to people, they go, oh, I'm going to try and be good enough. What is that? I'm devising my own way to God. I am going to achieve enough. Why do people crawl on their knees across the piazza, whatever, in Mexico City? To earn their way to heaven. Why do people make the pilgrimages to the holy centers, whether it's Mecca or whether it's Vatican or wherever they go? Why do they walk around with their black suitcase on Saturdays or whatever they walk around, the, the, the witnesses? Why do the the white-shirted ones ride their bicycles and spend two years. They're all earning their way to heaven. That's religion. My own way to God. Satan invented religion. Materialism is the other. If people aren't religious, they're materialistic. They think pleasures, possessions, and power are more important than God. Now notice in parenthesis, I wrote two words. Actively, those are the the people that you know, work on Wall Street or they're just insatiably in business, they can't earn enough. You know, it's kind of like John D. Rockefeller, how much money do you want? The first billionaire, he said, just one more dollar. They always want more. That's a materialist. Or passively. Who are those? The ones who are so enamored with pleasure and possessions and power doing their own thing, they don't have time for God. That's a problem in the church. There are some people in the church that are very religious, and what they think is, if I just memorize one more verse, or I read a little more, or serve at the church a little more, God will love me a little more. That's a religious that I'm trying to earn it, rather than believing that he did it all. He accomplished it all. I don't achieve anything. He accomplished it all. There's a problem with that in the church. That's why one whole segment of the church thinks they can lose their salvation, because they they didn't try hard enough, and they slumped back into sin, so they've lost their salvation. Then there's the other part of the church that we saw, like Sardis, where they're laying dead, that they love their pleasures and possessions and everything else more than God, so they don't have time or hunger for his word. So this, these are deadly. This is what Satan has been pumping out from the Garden of Eden. So we get to chapter 17. It has three parts. The first part is Satan's plan exposed, and that's the first six verses, this harlot. And it talks about this harlot and all these strange things about her. And then God explains what's going on behind the scenes, and then God extinguishes it. That's when uh, the harlot is killed by the ten kings. Number one, God hates religion. Revelation, before the second coming of Christ, chapter 17, God pours his wrath on false religion. Chapter 18, on worldliness. Chapter 17 is the collapse of the apostate world church. It's Satan's harlot bride. It's the delusion of religion. From Eden onwards, Satan has been building his church. Although Adam and Eve were tempted and fell into sin, they never joined the old serpent's assembly. But Cain 
was Satan's first member. Did you know that? The only person mentioned in 1 John. Did you know that? There's only one person mentioned in 1 John. Cain. He was Satan's first member. What did he do? Most people wouldn't think he did anything bad. God said, I want you to kill an innocent animal and I want you to shed its blood and, and uh, put your hand on it and, and by the shedding of an innocent re, uh, substitute for you, I'm going to forgive you of your sins. That was the Old Testament. That's what Adam and Eve were told to do. What did Cain do? He said, that's grisly. I'm not going to kill that animal. Blood? Mm-mm. I'm going to bring a pumpkin. Or what did he bring? An apple? I don't know what he brought. He brought, he brought produce. You know, he brought his prize-winning watermelon or squash or whatever it brought. It doesn't matter what he brought. What it was is, I'm not going to do your way a blood sacrifice substitutionary atonement. I'm going to do it my way. See, he was the first one that, that took Satan's offer of religion. Find your own way to God. Don't, God's way is either too old or it's too messy or it's gross, you know, blood. I'm going this way. And his church has flourished, by the way, since. By the way, Revelation 17 talks about Satan's church. Look look at this description. Um, I will show you, verse 1, the judgment of the great harlot sitting on many waters, whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. The inhabitants of the earth were drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried him away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And right away people say, this is... Very hard to understand. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls and had all in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead had a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Verse 6, And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of these saints and the blood of the martyrs. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. There's so much in here that we could study. By the way, harlots in the Roman world had this little headband thing so that you knew for sure you know, that they were available. They, they wore kind of a little, you know, I'm available thing. It was just part of their dressing, their decor, and, and men would know. They knew that, and they'd kind of keep their eye on that one, and they'd decide, and then they'd seek them out. And, and so, I mean, this was not... This, reading this to the first century, they got it. That's what a harlot looks like. And the drinking and the dress and everything like that. But what, it, what is it talking about? Well, Satan's church officially began in an organized way at the Tower of Babel. Do you remember when all humanity joined together with one language to rebel against God? The beginning of organized religion, about 24 centuries before Christ, in the fertile plains of Shinar, very close to the original Garden of Eden, the first spade of dirt was turned for the purpose of devil worship. Remember the, they were making this tower to reach to the heavens? The first full-time minister of Satan was Nimrod. He's described as the apostate, wicked grandson of Noah in Genesis 10. Secular history and tradition tells us Nimrod married a woman who was just as evil and demonic as himself. Her name was Semiramis. She knew, like everybody back then knew, because they were so close to the flood when all this knowledge was passed on, that God had promised a future Savior in Genesis 3, and Semiramis brazenly claimed that her son Tammuz fulfilled that prophecy. Now, she made up this great story. So let me tell you about 
What is this mystery of Babylon in the wilderness talking about? Well, if you know anything about world history, there's something that all world ancient religions have in common. It's a mother-son worship. It's a mother with a little son. And usually the mother is big and the son is little, like sitting on her lap or she's holding him or something. It's the mother-son thing. Semiramis is the mother. That's Nimrod's wife. The son is Tammuz. What happened to Tammuz, by the way? Well, she said this. Her son was out, uh, you know, walking along the riverbank, and a wild boar found him, and the wild boar, you know, took its tusk and gored him and trampled him, and all kinds of pieces of him were left on the riverbank. And she was sad, and she picked up all the pieces, and she put them into a basket, and she mourned for him for 40 days, and at the end of 40 days, he came to life. Doesn't that sound interesting? Dumb, fanciful, pagan. That is the worship of Babel. Because that's how this mother-son thing with the resurrection is in all these religions. All of them. Now, not all of them have a wild boar, but all of them have a mother and son, and the precious son dies, and he comes back to life. Some of them, like the Roman and Greeks, a, a beam of light touches him from the sun. But they all have this. So this, this myth goes to Aramean countries or Syria, and Ishtar is the mother and Tammuz is the son. In Phoenicia, as in the, the Tyre and Sidon or Hannibal, you ever heard of Hannibal and the elephants? That was the great Phoenician Empire. It was all over the Mediterranean. They had Ashtaroth and Baal. Now that should ring a bell from your Old Testament studies. This is what we're talking about. Ashtaroth's the mother, Baal is the son. Baal dies, Baal comes back to life, Baal is to be worshipped. What is that talking about? It's talking about what we see nowadays in, in a major religion that worships the mother and the son. And the mother has access that, that you need to go to her to get to the son. See, that's what all these religions have in common. By the time we get to Egypt, Isis is the mother and Osiris is the son. You've heard of those two. By the time we get to Greece, Aphrodite, Eros. Now, all of you have heard of the last one. In Rome, they renamed the mother Venus. They renamed the son Cupid. You know, that's the little naked fat child with the bow and arrow from Valentine's that you see. That's Cupid. That's the son of Venus. And that's the Roman form of mystery religion. Now, um, remember, I, my PhD was in work was in church history. And so I could talk about his, history all day long, but it would not get this class done. So Cain the Tower of Babel, and the Beast in the Final World Religion. There's a wonderful book about that. It's called The Two Babylons, Alexander Hislop. He was a, a, a historian from you know, the British colonial empire days who spent his life tracking down all this archaeology as they were finding it, and the British Museum, and he wrote this amazing book that ties together Genesis 4, Genesis 11, Revelation 13, 17, and 18. I looked on Amazon, and the last time I looked, it was like 4.99 or something. It's fascinating for those of you that like uh, study. But by the time we get into the Bible picking this up, we find in Jeremiah 44 that Israel had adopted the queen of heaven worship. You can read about that in uh, Jeremiah 44, 17 and 19 and 25. And they, they did this calling her the queen of heaven, which is that all those names down the left, you know, that I read off to you, 
whether it's Ashtaroth or Venus or whatever they called her, and they worshipped her, we find in, in Jeremiah, by making wafer cakes, putting her initial on it, and worshipping her son, Baal, who came back from the dead. So let's talk about this, because it gets into New Testament times. Revelation 17, that harlot, I personally believe the tribulations apostate church will be the Roman Catholic Church merged with all the other world religions. I don't believe that the Roman Catholic Church is the, the harlot. I believe that the global one world religion is going to be. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, Bonnie and I just got back from spending you know, weeks in Rome. You go up to Assisi. Did you know they regularly have conferences, the Roman Catholic Church, where they invite in the Dalai Lama? You know who he is? The Tibetan mystic? They, they invite in the whatever the top Buddhist is called, the top Shinto. They're inviting in, they invite in the, the imams of, of uh, Islam. They even invite in the tribal people from Africa. They're not trying to share the gospel with them, I can assure you. They're trying to find, look what it says, you may not believe it, that would ever do that, but they're already starting to find areas of agreement. The Roman Catholic Church, temporarily, Islam's growing fast, but temporarily it's the largest religion in the world, Romanism. It has the most public adherence. They are in talks with all other global religions that are major. Look at, to find areas of agreement. Do you know what they've already found with Islam? The Islamic faith reveres Mary. Wow, there's a great... Why would the Islamic faith revere Mary? Because their roots go back to this mother-son thing that's part of ancient religions from the, the get-go, from the start. So Islamic people reveal Mary, revere Mary, and boy, the Roman Catholic Church reveres Mary, we have something in common, so let's keep talking. And they're finding these points of agreement. That's the horror of this. Most Americans don't pay any attention to this fact. They say, oh, my, my Catholic church in my block doesn't believe that. Yeah, but what is the doctrine? What is Romanism? Not your local manifestation. What is the doctrine of the church? The world of religious professionals are very aware of this trend of global religion. By the way, this is the second woman we're seeing close together. Israel in chapter 12, remember we already went through this with the war in heaven. See the difference? Israel's in heaven. The woman riding the beast is on the earth. This mother is the, the, the child, the man-child is the emphasis. This woman, it's a harlot. She's clothed with the son, Israel, but this woman is, is clothed in her purple, scarlet, and gold harlot outfit. The identity is involved with the sun, moon, and stars, speaking of the creator. This, this harlot is over the is earth, you know, the kings of the earth. And then Satan is opposed to this, and you can just see the difference. And look where they end up. Israel ends up in New Jerusalem. The woman riding the beast is the habitation of demons and ends up being destroyed in the tribulation. Okay, let's explain this. Uh, starting in verse 7. The angel said, why do you marvel? John, you're looking at this. Why are you so confused? Why is this causing you wonder? Let me explain the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has seven heads and ten horns. The beast that you saw and is not will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. 
And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names, oh, now, now we've hit one of the most asked about parts of the book of Revelation. Let me read it. Will marvel because their names are not written in the what? What does it say? Anybody reading your Bible? I'll wait until everybody can see it. What does it say? The next three words. Book of life. What is that thing? That is a lot in the book of Revelation. I didn't even mention it. It was already in chapter 13. But I didn't hit it very hard because, you know, it's, it's a huge topic. What is the book of life? Well, I'll tell you what it is right here. Look at this. They will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is and is not. Did you know that event is directly talked about somewhere else in the Bible? Right? You all know this, right? Because you're Bible students. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Because nothing's new in the book of Revelation. It's all repeating and emphasizing and filling in the blanks of everything else. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, look what it says, starting uh, in verse 8. This is the Antichrist. Remember I told you he has 13 titles outside of Revelation? For the mystery of lawlessness is already, but he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Verse 8, and the lawless one will be revealed. That's the Antichrist. The Lord will consume him with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. That's Revelation 19. We're coming to tomorrow, Lord willing. The coming of the lawless one, there he is again, the Antichrist, is according to the workings of Satan. He's the incarnation of Satan. With all power and signs and lying wonders. That's the false prophet we met yesterday. Now, this is an important verse. Paul, this, these are Paul's first epistles. This is Paul's very first long-term teaching written down that he's writing to the Thessalonians. The first second Thessalonians are his, his first epistles. Wow. What do you teach new converts, Gentile converts, uh, and, and a few Jewish ones? What do you teach them? What's important that you spend all your time teaching them so much you write back about it? Well, Paul taught them biblical prophecy. He taught them what we're talking about in Revelation. Look what it says in verse 10. The Antichrist, who is introduced in verse 9, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish. So these are the people that don't go to heaven, these are the people that are forever lost. They get the mark of the beast that, that we're seeing in, in this horrible plague time of Revelation who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. I'm not sure if that answered more questions than it engenders. But there's a divine tension in Scripture about this. Uh, 1139. Basically this. Uh, the Bible says, verse 11, for this reason God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they might be condemned who do not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. That's a description of what I just went through with you last hour in chapter 16. They, they would not repent even though God was, you know, killing all the, the sea creatures. They would not repent because God was, they got mad at God in chapter 16. Why did they do that? Because they were sent strong delusion so they should not believe the lie, so they should believe the lie, so they could be condemned because they did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness, verse 12. But verse 10, all this started, they perished because they don't love the truth. 
Okay, what's the book of life? Back in Revelation 17. The book of life is the eternal protection from Satan's damning delusions unto the love of the truth. You know what the book of life is? It's a list of truth lovers. You say, boy, that doesn't answer my questions. Well, what you want is you want all your questions answered instead of sensing that there's a tension in Scripture between two things. Warren Wiersbe, he probably used to teach here. He used to be the president of Moody Bible Institute. used to be the pastor of Moody Memorial Church. He was an amazing guy. His goal in life was to teach through every verse of the Bible and write about it, and he did it before he died. And that's one of the sets I have, you know, prominently displayed in my library, his two-volume set on the whole Old and New Testament. I just love it. But a man who spent his whole life, I mean, he was the pastor of Moody Memorial. He was uh, at Moody Bible Institute. He wrote shelves of books and all that stuff. You know what he said after reading the Bible, after teaching through every part of the Bible? He says, I cannot reconcile the tension. So he said it's like this. On this side, on earth, for humans, you see the gateway to heaven. It says, whosoever will, let him come. All come freely. Come and get the water of life. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. And so we on this side are taking everybody and saying, look, the Lord says, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Do you know what Paul said? I, I beg people. 2 Corinthians 5, I beg you. Beg is a strong word. Be reconciled to God. Paul, I beg you, come to Christ. Wearsby said, but when you get to heaven and not before. See, the problem is everybody wants to understand something you'll only understand in heaven, and they want to argue about it. Do you know what the most asked question I've gotten since I got here is? Of all these people coming up to me, what do you think about the whole Calvin-Arminian thing? I thought, you're going to spend your life solving something that no one has solved. Peter had trouble with it. Peter said, Paul said stuff I can't understand. Why don't you just be like Peter and say, I can't understand it? Why do you think you have to become the one that is the fountain that explains it all? You can't because we don't understand it till this side. And Wearsby said, on the other side of that gateway to heaven, it's going to say what Revelation says. Chosen before the foundation of the world. Well, does that mean they don't have... What? Did you know you can't reconcile that? Because that's something only a perfect, infinite, omniscient God could reconcile. So we have a million ways to reconcile it, which you talk about in your theology class. But what the Bible does say, I just read to you. The people that are in the book of life are truth lovers. And the only thing that should apply to you is, are you? Do you love this? If you had to run from this building right now and you had to take one thing with you you're going to keep to the end of your life, what would it be? Your money, your phone, or your Bible. What's the one thing that will affect you forever that you possess? Right here. Yet that is so far down in the list of what people grab when they're running out of a building, it's not funny. It's because we don't treasure the truth like we should. Satan's plan explained is this. Satan's religions are always against the true vide of Jesus. Paul put it this way to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 11, 2. I'm jealous for you. I betrothed you to a husband. I want to present you as a chaste virgin. That's what's Revelation 17 about. The harlot versus the bride of Christ, the true virgin bride. The reason we have a lot of challenges is because we have the same Bible. 
this is something I, a lot of times on Sunday nights uh, or, or when I'm in other places, I do question answers on a smart board, you know, it's like a whiteboard you can write on and, and it doesn't go away. And so I draw a big square and I say, that's the Bible. So that's all the truth of God. And let's go through the early church. That's the first time we see in our era people applying the truth. And the early church, most of the early church was very biblical, but they had a lot of wacky ideas. They had a lot of wacky ideas. One of the earliest wacky ideas the early church had was baptismal regeneration. That's one of the first heresies of the church. And we still see it. That's why people in, in most of the covenantal churches baptize babies. They think that they're getting him in to heaven and washing away their sins with water. Oh, So the early church was mostly, see this side is in the Bible and it's right. That side is the wacko stuff. Then we went to the, the next, after the early church, is the Roman Catholic Church. And um, I might get to talk about that. And they had the problem that they, Mark said it this morning, I heard him say it. Most false doctrines are a majority truth, and then they have this error, something like that. He said, you guys took the notes, I was just listening. The Roman Catholic Church is about 95% absolute, orthodox, trinitarian doctrine. I mean, they're, they really know the doctrine, but boy, they've added this overlay of works and the sacraments and all that. Then, then we go, by the way, they are the ones who started Calvinism. That's Augustinianism. Then we move to the Reformation, and that's what you talk about with Luther and Calvin. That's the next iteration of the major church history event, early church, Roman Catholic Church, Reformation. What did the Reform Church do? I call it theological drift. I love illustrating this. If I had my marker board, I'd show you. They take a whole series of verses. They make conclusions from the verses. So you have verses, then you have conclusions. Now watch what the Reformed theologians do. They make conclusions from conclusions. Oh, there's the second most asked question to me since I got here. What do you think of limited atonement? I said, well, what do you think of limited You know, I always, what do you think of limited atonement? And they tell me all these things. I said, well, wait a minute. Let's just talk about that. The Bible has verses that you could derive those ideas from. So you make a conclusion that in this one verse, it seems to say, I just read it. They were chosen for the foundation of the world. So that you could say, whoa, God died for those that were chosen. But now watch. As long as you have verses and conclusions, you, you're still in biblical truth. But theological drift is when you make conclusions from conclusions. Now they're not tied to Scripture anymore. Limited atonement is absolutely true logically. It isn't say it in the Bible. You can't come to that, but it's very logical. And it is possibly, to them, true. But it's a drift, and that's what the Reformation Church did, and they did all these drifts, and I'm not doing church history, I won't talk about it. Then we get to the evangelicals, and things blew apart and started really growing. Remember Wesley and, and company, and they traveled the world, and we had this modern movement and missions going all over the place, but those people are primarily Arminian and Wesleyan. And if I had time, uh, paganism got into the church through Constantine. Basically what happened is, uh, over here, Constantine merged all the churches and they started adding to the Bible Roman Catholicism. Purgatory they added, the Pope's power. Then they went to indulgences and transubstantiation and they just 
most recently in 1950 say that Mary was bodily raptured to heaven. They call it the Assumption of Mary. What happened to the churches? Judaism, Christ came and explained and launched his church. There was one holy church. The Armenians went off. The Coptics went to Egypt. There was a schism. We have the Orthodox Church. Then Luther, and we started. The Roman Catholic went off, you know, from 1517 on. Out of Lutheranism came the Reformed Church, the Anglican Church. Hey, where are you from? There's the Methodists. There's the Christian Reformed. They're off the Anglican way. The Episcopalians, the Assemblies of God. The Reformed Church went into CRC and Presbyterian. The Unitarians. The Universalists. Wow, that came out of Czechoslovakia. The Baptists. Look at where they are. The Quakers. They're relatives. These people all evolved out of this. Church history is fascinating. But what does God think of all this? He's going to extinguish it. What does he extinguish? Religion. There's seven reasons I'm not a Roman Catholic. The Mass is absolutely against the Scripture. Mary was a sinner who needed to be saved. Tradition does not trump Scripture. We do not worship images or revere them and bow down and pray to them. Sacraments are like an IV that you strap to yourself and you need drips to get to heaven. You can't be completely saved right now. You try and lead a, a Roman Catholic to the Lord, ask them if they know for sure they're going to heaven. No, they're going to purgatory because they've got, Jesus didn't pay enough and purgatory is a false addition. And this is the gospel of, of, Calvin, or I mean of uh, Romanism. You're born a sinner, you're baptized and wash away your sin. Then if you commit venial sins, God forgives them, mortal sins, he doesn't, and you have to go to Mass. 